0: Welcome to Enemies of the People, a podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you will know how strongly I feel about human rights as a whole and women's rights in particular. For that reason, I have been dismayed at the way transphobia has become mainstream in British media and society. Trans rights have been portrayed as some kind of woke fad, a recent development which threatens women's rights. But nothing could be further from the truth. Women's rights are trans rights are human rights. In today's episode, I had the absolute honor and privilege to talk to the legendary Christine Birds. Christine has been campaigning for trans rights for decades, and she was awarded an MBE for her work. She is also the editor of Trans Britain, Our Journey from the Shadows, which is a beautiful book about the history of trans people in Britain. You'll have noticed that this week's episode is longer than usual. Christine and I talked for a long time, and honestly, we could have carried on even longer. So without further ado, here's Christine.
1: My name's Christine Burns. I'm uh, a British trans woman. I was born in the mid 1950s, so I'm now in my late 60s. And by career, I originally trained as a computer specialist. I became a computer consultant working for blue chip companies all over the the world really. And then I became I decided to jack that in in the early 2000s. And I became first the manager of of an organisation that provided social care to people with learning difficulties and mental health problems. And during that time, I also learned about all of the equality strands as Britain was going through about 10 years of working up towards having a Comprehensive Equality Act so that by the time that that was ready to be passed... I was already working as a consultant at Equality and Diversity and Inclusion. And that's how I carried on until I decided to retire about 2013. I think it was early 2013. So I've been retired ever since. So that's nearly, what, eight years, nine years, something like that. And you've been very active in your retirement. (laughs) Well, I was very active before. During that time as as an IT consultant, much of that time, I was doing the IT consulting during the day, and that usually involved living somewhere a long way away from home, so spending my life in a hotel room somewhere. And in the evenings, I did my work, my voluntary work, as um, as one of a very small group of um, trans rights activists. And what we were campaigning for in the early 90s was to achieve some laws to protect trans people's working lives and privacy and you know foster inclusion. And to, to, to achieve that, you need to achieve certain basic uh, basic legal rights. So that's what we were doing. So I was, you know, effectively I was doing two, two jobs at once for period of at least 15 or 16 years and then actually yes I suppose I continued doing that in the in the social care work, work as well so yes I spent much of my working life doing two jobs at once and the, so actually, and retirement is actually quite a quite a relaxation because I only do one job
0: <laughs> you can focus on one of them at the time yeah. <laughs> and I do it the organization, organization that you were were working with um back in the 90s was that it was called press for change wasn't it yes to
1: explain press for change if your listeners are interested shall i go back uh, some some considerable distance before that to yes, sort please. of give you a, a quick condensed history lesson in the trans community over the last 50 or 60 years if you look before around about 1965 then there was no evident trans community as such, except maybe one or two people meeting together, perhaps. But there was no support, and there was no, certainly no nobody campaigning for, for, for change. But actually, at that time, in 1965, ironically trans people could change their their documents they could change their birth certificate by a process that had just come into being for about 20 years since the since the early 1940s and that and people did that and on the basis of that they got married they settled down they were happy and then what actually happened in 1969 was a famous divorce case involving April Ashley and because of that and A hidden case that had taken place just before that, very swiftly, we lost all of those rights. But before that had happened, some, I suppose you could call them activists in Britain had copied from the organization in in the in the US that had been set up, which Transvestia magazine. I can never remember the name of the the woman who who set it up. But the two or three trans women in in Britain set up this organization called the Beaumont Trust, or rather the Beaumont Society in 1965, which was intended to be purely a, a support group for people who Well, ostensibly for people who cross-dress, but nobody was making any distinction really whether that included people who um, permanently changed their gender and were, in the medical term, transsexual or not. But Certainly, that was the only place that people could identify as being a hub of knowledge and support in the the mid-1960s. And as a result of that, sort of community blossomed out across the country. We saw the emergence of the first regular meeting groups. There was one in London, there was one in Manchester, there was some in Leeds and Derby, places like that. So there was at least somewhere to go for some, some help and advice. And if people, particularly if they felt suicidal, they could contact the Samaritans and they would give the, give the details of the Beaumont Society. And that by that means you would actually get to meet other people uh, and discover you weren't alone, and discover some of the things, some of the tips and tricks for survival in a world that was already quite quite hostile. I remember I learned most of my initial trans history from a group in Manchester, which I finally found in the, the early 1970s. But for the next 20, 25 years, that was essentially what there was. As I said, we in the end of the 1960s, because of that court case, we lost our right to change um, our birth certificates and to therefore be able to marry in our acquired gender, you could change your other documents. You could change your uh, driving license, and you could change your passport, and you could change your name on any documents, including your bank account and, uh, and your your details at the social security. But ultimately, that that status meant that any trans person was likely to be outed at any time they were applying for the kind of job that required them to present their birth certificate to prove that they were British and to prove their age for the purposes of their company's pension scheme, for instance. And so our working environment was quite precarious, and particularly since it had been argued in in court that although we had a Sex Discrimination Act since 1975, employers could argue that so long as they said that they weren't discriminating because they they would have discriminated against a trans man as much as a trans woman and that was seen by the by the simple way in which the, the the sex discrimination worked as being not sex discrimination because trans people regardless of sex were being treated treated equally and that's how that stayed for quite a long time The first changes to that came in the mid-1980s. There was a a trans man who I know very well um, called Mark Rees who thought this was awful because it meant he couldn't train to become a Church of England priest because, as a trans man, the, the law and the Church of England regarded him as a woman and we didn't have women priests in those days And he couldn't marry a woman because the law regarded him as a woman. It was quite happy for him, complete with his beard and his deep voice, to settle down with a man, Uh, which was ironic because at the same time, the the government of the the day was arguing that against homosexual relationships. But that's the way. So he took his case all the way to the European Court of Human Rights. Um, which uh, administers a treaty very similar to the UN Declaration of uh, Human Rights, except it applies across 39 different European states. And he made his case on the basis that having having documents like his birth certificate, which he couldn't change, meant that he never had any secure right to privacy and he was unable to to marry in effect because to marry a, a man would either you know, mean that they were in permanently subject to scrutiny from, from neighbours because they were ostensibly a same-sex relationship, um, besides which he didn't fancy men. So, so he you know, argued that and uh, he lost. But the interesting thing was, was the dissenting views of some judges and the conversation that started. And to cut a long story short, that conversation resulted in a senior British politician approaching him and saying, you know, I'd like to I'd like to help. I'd like to meet some of your colleagues. And they all met together in 1992 in uh, Westminster. This member of parliament suggested to them that he thought it would take about 10 years to, to change the law. And to do so, they were going to have to form a cam- an actual political campaign, an activist campaign. So they went off and uh, that afternoon, they had a chat- conversation about how to set this organisation up and then what to call it. And they, they were sort of banding names around. And somebody said, because everybody was saying, we need to press for change. We need to press for change. And so suddenly, somebody said, well, why don't we call it press for change? It was a wordplay but it described exactly what was on in in the box so that's how press for change was uh, instituted in february 1992 and that was the point at which trans people in britain then an activist political campaign which was set up specifically to achieve uh, equal legal civil rights for, uh, for for trans people in britain by um taking uh, strategic legal cases and also by Making friends and and convincing people that this was a with this was a sensible and humane thing to do, so that we took it from there really, and we had our first legal success at the European Court of Justice, which is the the court of the European Union in 1996, which was a an unfair dismissal case, and the result of that case being found in the person's favour was that it applied the European Equal Treatment Directive, so the equivalent of a sort of Equality Act, right across Europe to everybody on the basis that they might be planning to undergo, undergoing or having undergone gender reassignment. And as a result of that, that forced the government in Britain towards the end of the 90s to introduce some legislation to extend the Sex Discrimination Act and make it very clear the law discrimination against trans people in employment or in education, on that basis of planning to undergo undergoing or having undergone gender reassignment, was unlawful sex discrimination. So, in the space of less than ten years, we've gone from having no rights to having a pretty cast iron uh, start on of you know, having some solid rights in terms of employment. And if you're trying to achieve civil rights for a group of people it's uh, making employment more uh, secure is one of the first steps you really need to take because if you can't keep a roof over your head then there's nothing you can do really I'm going to take a breath at this point and drink some tea (laughs) that's all right and I'm just brimming with questions and
0: fascinated by all of this because there we have been sold a lie at least the media has been and certain interest groups have been telling us a lie that um, trans rights and trans activism is a recent fad when it's actually been ongoing for decades
1: for generations really it's it's all lies and it relies on the fact that people have been largely ignorant of our existence i i was amazed in 2004 that we got a Gender Recognition Act, which I'll come back to in a bit, through Parliament, you know, it, it, you can hardly keep it secret. It was debated in the House of Commons, then, de- sorry, debated in the House of Lords, then in the House of Commons, then back to the House of Lords again. And, you know, it, it did make the news. So that should have been the tip that we were doing this stuff and that trans people, were, well, you know, it was never a secret that we existed because the press had been treating us as tabloid titillation for already by that point about 40 years. They hadn't always done so. If you go back to the prior to the 1950s, and there were people transitioning in those days, quite often without any kind of support around them, and notably the ones we know about were people who came from uh, families with substance, with money and resources and contacts. Uh, and very often those were actually the stories of trans men for some reason as well. But they, you know, they, 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 they were able to transit. There's a book coming out in a, in a fortnight's time, which will be really interesting. I've I've read it to review, uh, and it tells the, the story of a, of a trans man who was born around about 1912. And he was very lucky in having a mother who recognised that he was a trans boy, even in those days, a more than 100 years ago, and took him around Europe because this was a landed Scottish family with power and influence and money. And she took him to all the medical specialists around Europe and synthesized testosterone uh, was just coming out then and people were experimenting what, with what you could do with it and understanding it. And so she managed to, to, to obviously there are no puberty blockers in those days, but certainly by about 1920, he was actually receiving a cross-sex hormones and so never had a female puberty and therefore grew up with all the advantages that we seek these days for, for trans kids not to have the wrong puberty. But Me, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but the point was is that prior to the 1950s, where cases like that came into the attention of the press, and I've given some examples in my book, Trans-Breton, they weren't regarded as being, you know, shock horror cases. They were reported with some interest and a a good degree of respect. There was curiosity, I think, and people thought about the philosophical issue of somebody who had been born with a vagina growing up to be a man and what that meant. But the the, the the world wasn't incensed about it. So you, it, but that didn't happen until the, the 1950s. And you have two very prominent cases of uh, trans women transitioning. Obviously, there was Christine Jorgensen from the US, and there was a very similar case um, called Roberta Cowell in the UK. And in those cases, again, there was an enormous amount of press interest. Both both women. Sold their story to the press, partly I think to to pay their bills, but all and support their families. And as a result of that, the speed, the, the interest never died down. The interest in Christine Jorgensen never really died down, and it didn't on this side of the pond with uh, Roberta Cowell either. And so realised that this sold papers, particularly on Sundays, in the, in the Sunday tabloids, that to have a case, another case of somebody confessing that they were trans and that they were, and then telling their heartbreaking story of getting to the operating theatre and, and all that stuff, that was, you know, the press, the, the public would buy newspapers with stories like that. And so there was a, there was a really active search to find cases like that and expose them. So in 1962, um, the, one of those trans men from the early part of the century, I, I described, um, was outed because he had left a chink. When he changed his documents, there was a source that still recorded him by his old details. And consequently, the press were right onto that and they hounded him. He, I think the, the, these days we would describe what he went through as PTSD. He became uh, a Tibetan monk living in uh, very lessened circumstances in Tibet and got pneumonia and died uh, a couple of years later. So that wasn't a very happy story. And, uh, of course, about the same time, April Ashley, a, a, a very beautiful socialite actress, but a model, uh, a favourite of David Bailey's in those days, who'd actually grown up in a slum in Liverpool and so completely Reinvented itself as this beautiful woman who who knew very famous and important people and was at all the best parties, had been on the stage at Le Carousel in Paris and had one of the uh, the salaciously reported gender reassignment operations in Casablanca. It's got all the things to make it interesting. So, yeah, that that became the, the model for the press. They wanted stories like that or stories about it all going wrong. So, for instance, April Ashley. Had met this landed young man who was going again going to inherit a title. We Brits are absolutely slaves to our titles, I'm afraid. And uh, they got married because it was still the days when you know people. Well, actually, nobody ever really asks to see your documents when you get married. If there's a man and a woman standing there and they've got a marriage certificate, then that's that, that's it. So they fell out. She wanted a house in Spain. From him, he wasn't going to give it to her. He aggressively pursued her in the court to, to 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 stamp down on that on any claim that she might have by arguing that she, at the time of the marriage, she was in the eyes of the law for the purposes of the Marriage Act, a man, and therefore the uh, the, the the marriage could not have been um, ever valid. And therefore, you know, it wasn't a case of marrying and getting divorced. It was, you were never married, so there can never be any divorce rights. And so that's that's what really, you know, put the, put the knife into our rights at the end of the 60s. So I started down that path to explain this troubled relationship that, that trans people have had with the press. And it goes back to, what, to the 1950s. So that's it's now 70, 70 years it's been that way for the entirety of my life put it another way uh yes. and i suppose for most other trans people's lives as well before we started
0: recording i i started talking to you about this last week in the uk has been particularly bad the, the press has been particularly bad the coverage of trans people has been particularly transphobic and you very rightly corrected me in saying it's typical it hasn't been particularly bad it's just what it what it has been for a long time
1: yeah and a, and a point I made on on Twitter yesterday which I I hope got through to 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 people who didn't understand it was that if the strategy uh to fight trans people is to make life really miserable by constantly coming at us, because there isn't a day that passes without there being something in the press. And the depressing thing is that it comes from places that you think you ought to be able to trust. I grew up believing that the BBC was the best media organisation in the world. Everybody looks up to it. And we cannot trust, not only on, on how to report trans people, but on a, across a, a range of subjects now, including climate change and Brexit and... Uh, Domestic politics, well, you basically everything, and the same goes for many of our newspapers as well. I used to trust some of them. I mean, there have always been some partial ones, but you know, the Times used to be a revered newspaper, regarded as the newspaper of record. If it said it in the Times, it was fact. And I, I yeah, I didn't agree with their politics all the time, but but it was it was reassuring. I think to live in a world where there were institutions who were wedded to objective facts. And I know that in the last five years, both sides of the Atlantic, people seem to have given up on the truth as though it's just an inconvenience. And you know, there is no future in a world like that because you know, we have to have regard to the truth because the truth has a way of, its, of asserting itself, particularly, for instance, with the climate. You know, we might We might fiddle the figures in terms of (laughs) our emissions but the planet isn't fooled, uh and it will still do what it's going to do so you know if it's a matter of survival that we get back on the road of actually having uh, deference and regard for, for, for the truth and actually having a shared truth this is why we cannot have any conversation around this stuff because we've got a group of people who have been totally brainwashed with an alternative reality. So how do you start with anybody like that? Because, yeah, I can I can reel off trans history and facts for many hours. And I will do it unless somebody stops me. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but if somebody has completely s- drunk this, this nonsense, you know, has made up their mind and therefore doesn't want, uh, is so invested that they don't want to change that mind, what can you do? So we, we, we are really stuck at this moment in time until I think you know, we solve a bigger problem in our societies and get back on the road to to having you know, sensible, respectful conversations. Because the point I'd make is that with our rights, they have been debated. You know, we obtained our employment rights and we obtained the Gender Recognition Act through a long and formal process a debate, both in the courts and in Parliament, uh, and also to anybody who wanted to talk to us in the press. We had to explain what it was we were pursuing, why it was that these things were necessary, and what effects they would have. And as a result of that process, we obtained the rights that we had. And it's immensely frustrating, you know, 10 or 15 years later or longer, to find that that you know, these issues that we thought had been set, suddenly regarded as in play again, but being rerun with a whole different set of facts <laughs> to argue to argue differently, that's quite scary. When, as I say, the institutions you rely on to be the to be the arbiters in these kinds of debates are no longer reliable, it's, it 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 breaks my heart. The newspapers like the Guardian. Know have completely lost their heads. For me, what I think it's, from
0: my perspective, the most pernicious or one of the most pernicious sides of all of this is that the attack on trans women in the UK seems to be coming from other women, primarily other women. Personally, I have always felt that one of the particular cruelties of the patriarchy is that women are often its most strongest enforcers we all deserve the same rights and protections but instead of doing that we're turning against each other over this ridiculous obsessive misunderstanding and lie
1: about what identity and gender is I think I would clarify that certainly in my experience of the UK it's you know we shouldn't just say it's it's women it's actually a small subset of women who are tacking on to something that was a thing in the 1980s and then we thought it died out this this thing of gender critical well actually trans, trans exclusionary radical feminism but yeah it was it was popular but very very fringe in the, in the late 1970s and early 1980s and it was fringe because uh, the majority of women looked at it and thought Ugh, not having that <laughs> If you wanted to be part of what was then a cult, you had to agree to certain things. It, it was it was a ra- radical ex- you know, a exclusionary feminism, which said that you you couldn't have any anything representing male essence anywhere near you. So it was about being separatist. So if you wanted to join uh, one of these separatist groups, you couldn't have a husband. You couldn't you couldn't even have children who were boys over as over a certain age and it was and 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 yeah, to make those sorts of demands of people and to invent this idea of political lesbianism so that i'm spending all my life with women not because i've grown up to be sexually attracted and amorously attracted to, uh, to women but because i'm making a political choice to exclude men it's like joining a religious cult. Co- because there's no reasoning with them, right? There is no, yes, no yeah. reasoning with them. But as I say, we thought in the late 80s and early 90s that had died off. Uh, and the proponents went off to do, to do other things. And so when this all sort of started to rekindle, probably around about, I suppose about 2000, I suppose the first signs were about 2008 or 9, and it was really starting to, as a little brush fire, but I think about, about 2012 and 13 on, on in those days, blogs as opposed to Facebook. It looked, you know, I think we tended to look upon it as being, oh, they're back, but, you know, they're, they're small, they're fringe, they're harmless. Uh, and what changed that was this association they went into with people. Who aren't even necessarily women, you know? They, they, it's it's they found this alignment with right-wing evangelical Republican men who, you know, against everything that women should be interested in, like you know <laughs> bodily autonomy, birth control, abortion, all those things. They are vehemently against. But these women who called themselves feminists were getting into figuratively into bed with these men for the money and for the for the support. Then he sort of took off in a way that I can't quite credit across our institutions. You know, they, they, many of our newspapers have strong cadres of women of probably about my age. So they so they grew up with the emergence of second wave feminism, and they they had seen all this separatist stuff and. They were well versed in the rest. And because of that, actually, they should know full well that we we trans people have been around all the time because we used to work together. But they are now at an age and a place in their career where they have real power, particularly in left-leaning uh, newspapers like The Guardian. And it sickens me to think that people would misuse... The, their status and the power of the, their position to to do what they have done with the with with an entire set of media outlets. But it's yeah at some point or other, I think we've actually really got when this is all over, we've really got to get to the bottom of actually how this played out in institutions like the BBC and like The times and the the Guardian and so on. Maybe not so much some of the others, yeah, you know, the, the more right-leaning ones because they were always that way. So I'm not surprised. But it's the power of it coming from, from the Times in particular and the BBC in particular that really makes it uh, you know, uh, something that is really, really scary. What do you think was
0: behind that um, resurfacing of this kind of thinking around the 2009, like you said?
1: I think... The part in 2008 and 2009 maybe had just never died out, but there were people who had decided to identify themselves specifically as trans-exclusionary radical feminists and were using the fact that suddenly they had a platform in the form of, you know, we're we're all into having blogs in those days and actually, yeah, gaining a a following through things like LiveJournal and having interest you know, directed towards them by having this as their as their USP, I suppose, a you know, unique selling point. I think it's it's easier to understand what happened later, um, because that was more apparent that suddenly we began to see people you know, with positions, as I say, in of influence starting to, uh, to starting to repeat the same uh you know, argument. Uh, uh, what do they call them um speaking points yeah talking points yeah, yeah. and and there's nothing new about any of them you know, all of these things particularly you know the, the ones like you know about the use of toilets for instance that was that was common currency in the early 1980s you know, so there's nothing original and you know so much of the the, the transphobia flung around is basically reheated homophobia as well that, you know, that we want we want to come for your children and uh, and trans them. Well, in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, it was commonplace for the press to, to to print stories that homosexual men wanted to wanted young uh, impressionable young children. So there's nothing original about it. But I think what we do know is that around about two thousand and fourteen, and you've got on the one hand you've got things like time having that front page cover about a transgender tipping point and, you know, much more visibility for trans, trans women with um, Lauren, do I mean Cox? What's her name? Laverne, Laverne Cox. Laverne on Orange is the New Black. And that's an interesting thing because, of course, it came out on Netflix worldwide at the same time. So, you know, it's a shared social experience, I suppose, for all of us to see this trans woman Acting the part of a trans woman, but that—that at that was the point at which we began to see you know, this, this this stuff really emerging in terms of trying to push back against that.
0: Hello, frenemies! I wanted to say thank you to everyone who came to our book club this Saturday. We had a fantastic meeting and I cannot wait to share with you as a bonus episode of the podcast. I am now very happy to announce that November's Frenemies Book Club, see, I changed our name that we are now known as the Frenemies Book Club. So November's Frenemies Book Club book is... The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything by Mike Rothschild. Mike is also our guest for next week's episode. And really, the final three episodes of this, the first season of Enemies of the People, are all to do with QAnon conspiracy theories and the role that they play in extremism and radicalization. I'm looking forward to talking more about this with you and discussing it with you in november's book club remember that if you want to join us for next month's book club meeting just become a member over at coffee and as usual i will be doing a giveaway for one copy of the storm is upon us if you would like to join our giveaway please support us over at coffee every donation counts as one entry and obviously if you become a member that also counts as an entry you don't have to donate to enter the giveaway. Just send us a screenshot of your review of Enemies of the People. I will be announcing the winner of the giveaway in two weeks. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And now, back to this week's episode. Can we talk a little bit about the the Gender Recognition Act? Because there's backlash came up a few years after the Gender Recognition Act
1: had been passed, had been enacted, right? The Gender Recognition Act uh, is a really, really boring piece of legislation. Uh, and I say that having worked on it for 12 or 13 years to get to, you know, to get it to happen, It's it was necessitated because we won a case at the European Court of Human Rights, which necessitated Britain to have some mechanism or effectively to restore the mechanism we used to have for trans people to be able to change their legal gender in, in, in remaining documents like a birth certificate, and to have that legally recognised for, for all purposes. I changed my gender marker on my passport without any any ceremony. I wrote to the passport office with proof of my change of name, and I think I got a letter from a doctor, but. Uh, but, yeah, it was done as a very, very quickly. I went to the passport office and in the space of an hour. I emerged with a new passport, which had a nice new picture in it, and, 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 and Christine on it. So it wasn't it was documents like that. You didn't actually have to have this big, you, know, you, didn't, have, you didn't have to have a law, and you didn't have a, have a complicated process. Changing my driver's licence was even easier. I just wrote to the, to the agency that issues them, again, with the standard documentation that proved who I was, a change of name. And I think it was about a week later, I got back a nice, fresh driver's license. In those days, we didn't have pictures on them anyway. So it wasn't a a big deal. And that was the case for most documents. But for your birth certificate, because of these cases that had happened in the late 1960s, there had been a ruling to, to prevent us from doing that, as we had been doing until that point. And it turns out that right at the bottom of this, apart from the fear that there would be other other cases of a, of a trans woman being legally recognized and then marrying somebody, particularly somebody posh with money, but um, it's a British hang-up, as I say, but but also these cases that have come earlier where trans men transitioned and then inherited titles. And we're a country where we've only ever we've only had our second female monarch in something like 4 or 500 years because we ran out of males in the line of succession she had besides prince charles she had she had a daughter who was older than prince charles so you know if we were to do you know, if we were to mess about with the line of succession this could have real implications and that's i think trying to squash the legal recognition of our change of gender all comes back to the uh, the powers that be preserving the status quo in those terms that half of the the house of lords our second house in in parliament you know is inherited titles and and inherited titles that only go to the most senior man in the family so to to have people uh, changing their gender willy-nilly and having it legally recognised as though it had always been, then then that has implications all over the place. So, but irrespective of that, we won the case at the European Court of Human Rights and the government had to come up with the process. And so it created this, this law, which was designed to really sort of rein in the possibilities for what could happen and the, the, one of the most significant things of that was, apart from, you know, there were things like, you know, obviously presenting evidence that you were, you know, you were who you said you were and had been. You know, so there's all sorts of documents, maybe going back two or three years to show that, that you had been living as who you are for two years and to sign a legal document, um, which if you lied was perjury, to say you intended to be this new gender for the rest of your days. But on top of that, if that wasn't enough, they slung in this requirement for applicants to present evidence from psychiatrists that they had had this condition called gender dysphoria and had been treated for it. And that is the bit, although, I mean, when we passed the Gender Recognition Act, it was the most advanced legislation of its kind in the world where people had them. I mean, you, you haven't had them in the US, But certainly all across Europe, we were one of the last four countries in in Europe and and the Commonwealth to not have legislation to facilitate people legally changing their gender. We were, you know, the, the only four of us were obviously Britain, Albania, Andorra and the Republic of Ireland. And the Republic of Ireland was actually thinking about doing it. So we were right. We were by that point really an international outlier. So they came up with this process and we were, it, was, it wasn't it was all the things we wanted, but it was it was better than a kick in the teeth. So, you know, making progress in, in politics uh, you know, to change laws doesn't always happen, everything that you want all in one go. So I was quite relaxed that when we passed the Gender Recognition Act in 2004, that that wasn't going to be the last word on it. And I expected, looking at the history, that maybe in about 10 years' time, Another generation would come back and say, "You didn't do well enough. i are going to have another go." And uh, and obvious contenders for that were this um, this medical requirement because it's uh, because this medical evidence requirement is one. It's expensive because you've got to get a doctor to write a very lengthy report, and it's it's it, it's embarrassing and humiliating to have to do that. And yeah. It goes against all the principles of autonomy that anybody should actually have to have somebody else to endorse who they are. And this was about simply changing a document that you have to bring out to show that you know when you were born, what your name was, who your parents were and whether you're British you know it seemed absolute overkill and by that point about 2010, lots of countries, were going one better. They'd seen, okay, Britain, you've set the bar, now we're going to exceed it. So we had countries all over the world passing legislation which didn't have this medical evidence requirement. Uh, And it particularly slotted in with the fact that WPATH and the World Health Organization, which sets the big global compendium of uh, medical conditions called the International Classification of Diseases, they were moving away regarding transness as being any, any sort of mental health condition. They wanted to put it into, into sexual health. And so that changes the nature of it. And, you, you know, the psychiatrists have no place in that. And the, the, di- you know, the, the condition called gender dysphoria had been superseded anyway. So to have a law that said you have to have been diagnosed with something that no longer exists is, is daft. So people were arguing that yeah we did need to reform the Gender Recognition Act. But actually for trans people, it wasn't a priority. There were much bigger things in Britain that concerned us, like yeah, improving the access that people had to healthcare, our national health service, which had always been dire. It had got a bit better, but it was still lacking by comparison with other models you know we we are stuck with this idea of actually having specialist centers called gender identity clinics which you must go to and they're staffed with people who are really up themselves whereas (laughs) in, in places like i mean particularly canada you know, they have a much more sensible model. They've evolved towards this idea of informed consent and working with trans people, as opposed to just keeping them at bay and saying, "I'll decide what you are when you when you when you are when you become it." Um, and I think you know, the, the, there's lots of places in the world where ge- most of gender reassignment is handled by by general practitioners, you know, family doctors and endocrinologists. As it had been looking back 60 or 70 years, that's where treatment of trans people was centered, going back to the 1940s and the 1930s. It was only in the 1960s the psychiatry made a land grab and said, no, this is, we're in control of this. And that's how we ended up in the position we are. So the the way that the Gender Recognition Act is structured really is sort of meshed with how healthcare works, and has been monopolised by a certain cadre clinicians.
0: This is going to sound a bit like a stupid question, but hopefully you'll see where I'm going with it. All that you're saying makes extreme sense. It is logical why the reform of the Gender Recognition Act is something that, that needs to be on the cards. Why the backlash
1: against it? Well, I think I there's something I missed out before in explaining what happened around about 2014. Because if you remember, you know, the, the, the evangelical right had lost bigly in, in, in the States in terms of same-sex marriage. And that had been so much a part of what defined them as a, you know, reactionary groups uh, for so long that I think they were sort of, they were a bit disoriented for a while, and then you have a meeting that took place in around about 2017, the Value Voters Summit, organised by the Heritage Foundation, where it was put forward that a new strategy to recover from that and sort of get back their mojo was to attack trans, and in particular, if they could manage to separate the T from the LGB. Then, you know, to to, to draw a wedge, to drive a wedge through, you know, the the successful alliance that we had as, you know, lesbians, gays, bisexuals and trans people. You know, all with different lives and experiences, but with a common interest. And we were very, very successful together. So if they could find a way to drive a wedge. And trans seemed to be low hanging fruit because although everybody seems to be sort of much more relaxed about Everybody would claim to have a gay friend or a lesbian friend and be cool about it. Their life would be incomplete they didn't have. Most people seem to think that they've never met a trans person. They have, of course. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, you know, we start gas in their car and we serve them at the shops uh, or we pass them in the street. But there weren't very many High-profile trans people, except Lauren Laverne. So, so we, yeah. So, so that was their strategy. And what happened in Britain was that in 2017, this was beginning to sort of bubble up. We noticed it in the amount of silly stories in the press from about the beginning of that year. There'd always been some, but some newspapers, like the Times of London, for instance, hadn't really written about trans people for a long time. And then suddenly in 2017, uh, in the first half of 2017, there were there were half a dozen articles. So you know, looking back, we should see that something was definitely amiss. But what happened at the end of 2017, in November that year, was that Prime Minister Theresa May was looking for a good... A good uh, a good feeling story. She was invited to give a a, a keynote to the Pink News Awards. And she noted, I think, that her predecessor, David Cameron, had got a lot of kudos out of being associated with the the whole business of equal marriage in in Britain. He hadn't instituted it. It It had come from a Liberal Democrat, but he was happy to take the credit for it. And so somebody obviously whispered in her ear that, one of the things that had come out of of a select committee investigation into what needed to be done to level up LGBT rights in general was that it was quite often the subject of making it easier to apply for gender recognition kept coming up. And so she latched onto this, and at that event, she announced that her government in the following year was going to have a consultation about simplifying the Gender Recognition Act and, in particular, removing the medical evidence requirement. And the term that got attached to that was self-identification because if you're not being identified for these purposes by a doctor, then you're, you're doing it for yourself. You know, everything we do most most of our life is self-identification. We don't have to get somebody else to endorse who we are or what we say we are. And so it was almost as if somebody shot a starting pistol. And I think that there was some coordination behind the scenes, knowing that this was coming, that they were suddenly, from out of nowhere, there were these astroturf groups that suddenly popping up which were no more than a Twitter account, a fancy name and a nice logo and lots to say. And that's where this narrative about this will be disastrous because with, if, if anybody can fill out a form and, uh, and apply for legal recognition, then, then a man can go into a women's toilet and, and do bad things. There's no point in trying to explain that men would do that anyway. And if they wanted to legitimise it, well, they could get a, get some overalls and a mop and bucket because most most women's toilets, public toilets in Britain, are cleaned by men, and we walk around them and we are not at all troubled. But it made it made good copy, and so suddenly you get everybody writing about this. And the, the idea, there's no point in trying to point out that the this that had nothing to do with gender uh, gender reg, uh, recognition. The Gender Recognition Act is merely a mechanism to change your birth record and have a new birth certificate issued so that you are not embarrassed by having to carry around something that said that you were called something else and changed. The right for trans women in particular to use women's toilets and changing rooms and all that actually originally it had just been common law rights, you know, that it, it, it was simply, there were no laws that said who could and couldn't use toilets. It was actually, it was a principle of decency and people knowing how to, to, to regulate themselves. But with the Equality Act, it had actually been put into, in 2010, which is six years after the Gender Recognition Act, it had been made a bit a bit more clear The people who operated these facilities should, by and large, recognise people according to how they self-identified themselves. And the purpose of doing that was to make it clear what the law was for people who didn't have gender recognition certificates, people who were maybe at the start of transition, where, of course, doctors insist that in order to qualify for the rest, you actually have to use the toilet of your acquired gender and 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 go shopping in the shops and, and change in in the women's changing rooms and so on so none of that was really radical but of course if you present it to people who are absolutely clueless about how the world works for trans people then it may it sounded good you know there were, by changing the gender recognition act tomorrow so, hordes of men will be flooding women's toilets and raping it right left and centre and nobody ever discussed for instance what would happen the other way around that if you insisted that trans men had to use the ladies uh, restroom then that would be a bit scary because most of the trans that I know look like 100% bearded dark uh, deep voiced men with muscles and if you've established a principle where a trans man is a routine site in the women's toilets, then, then it's very easy for cisgender for, for men to get into the, to the ladies. Yeah, so it was a it was an absurd period of, of, of arguing the absolute nonsense. And you kind of looking around thinking, you know, these are grown-up journalists. And yeah, I know how journalists are trained and how they are supposed to investigate stories and stand up what they're saying. How did this ever get into print? How was this ever given a nod by a sub-editor and an editor? How, did, how come nobody said, well, that's absurd, that can't happen, Yeah, if you check what the law says? Because nobody ever seems to care about what the law actually says, they just make up what they think it says. So we've had we've had this absolute. If you're, if pardon my using the expression shit show for the last <laughs> the last four years or so, particularly as we got into 2018, and the immediate reaction of the government had been to to look like a rabbit caught in headlights. You know, the process of trying to organise this public consultation was stalled and stalled, and the longer they stalled it the more they created a vacuum of, you know, with, without any information, all the government needed to have done is to explain what I've just explained to you and what they had in mind. But no, it was absolute total radio silence. The press wasn't printing us. And consequently, the, these gen- people who then kept, went on to call themselves gender critical had the run of the place for months and months. And then when they finally had the consultation, on their proposals to amend the Gender Recognition Act uh, and and had explained that there was a different piece of legislation which governed who could use which facilities. There was a massive response. You know, a consultation, normally, you might have a few hundred interested parties who really know the subject and have something to say. And the government had, I think it was, something like 100,000 responses. And that's not a public consultation that's a plebiscite. That's a vote. Uh, that's like attaching one of these uh, questions to, to an election that you do in the U- United States. It was horrifying because, yeah you know, we, we are a small community. But even, though, even so, even with that, the funny thing was, when they added up all the totals, uh, there was still a majority of people who said, yeah, we think this is a good change. And the government's response then was to say, oh, well, you know, this this whole thing has been infected by trans activists sending in bulk replies. <laughs> yeah. So they said they'd have another one. And meanwhile, they had one in Scotland as well, and they've got exactly the same kind of response, although they've done it more sensibly, I've got to say. So it's just been one nightmare after another, you know, wondering what, what's, what, what's going to drop next. But as I say, going back to what I was saying on, on Twitter yesterday, I think what people miss if they think that by creating this really hostile environment for trans people that they will dissuade us from being trans uh, is that the thing that we have transitioned away from is far far worse and far far more unbearable than anything short of you know putting us in concentration camps that that, that society could throw our way. you know we it's hard transitioning but everybody seems to agree that actually it's better than what they came from. So faced with that, the strategy of let's make it really, really tough and then they'll go away, you know, is a bit like saying if we make it really tough for black and minority ethnic people, they'll stop being black and minority ethnic and, and just be good whites. Um, it doesn't work. You know, we can't change who we are or what we are. All they succeed in doing for, the, for, for as long as they're interested in trying to keep this up is making everybody miserable and making work and taking us away from the kind of work that we all need to do to make the world a better place for for everyone. If I wasn't forced to think about this every day, then I would have carried on being a good feminist and fighting for all the things that we need to fight for because we have so many common interests. When I walk down a dark street at night, I've got exactly the same fears and I'm in exactly the same danger as any other woman walking down that street on her own, so I completely understand, you know, what you know, the, the big things in society that we need to we need to fix, and all the things about, you know, access to uh, abortion and you would call it oral contraception. Those things, you know, gel with people, you know, in my community who have you know, understood the importance of bodily autonomy. We should be working together. And this goes across all the, all of the, the minorities. So the, yeah. This stuff is invented to keep us divided and to keep us arguing with ourselves. Because actually, if we got together and all worked together, then we outnumber the bastards. That probably scares them more than anything else. You know, yeah. women are a world majority outright, but add in, you know, uh, black and minority ethnic uh, people, disabled people, gay and lesbian and trans people, and anybody else who has the experience of being discriminated against for who they are, then we are a, a powerful force with, with a vested interest in making the world a better place. That was
0: what it was going to be my final question. Um, and I'm sorry, I've taken so much of your time already. I could listen to, and ask you so many more questions. But what day is it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How long has it been? Can we carry on, please? <laughs> but, but I wanted to ask, what can we do as cis allies? Because the burden of fighting this cannot only fall on the shoulders of the trans community. We need to do our part
1: as well. So what can we do? There was a really good example today when somebody started up a hashtag. I think it's kiss with the T. Thousands of kiss gender people just posted on that hashtag. And if you're in a world where it just seems like the opposition is yeah, is yeah is vast and just plain scary, to actually see love expressed through through people posting under that hashtag, I think has, has really brightened a lot of people's days. But then yeah, I think that, that's obviously that's an easy performative performative thing to do. And it sort of it, it matters a lot because I think people need a lot of reassurance because you know they'll feel happy today and then some some other piece of muck will come along tomorrow and be equally scary and people are back thinking, oh God, you know, where does this end? And you know, we've having studied history, we have some some scary ideas about where things like this could end. It's inevitable, particularly with the degree to which you know the the apparatus of the state or the media have been taken over by this crowd. It's easy to think this is this actually has the potential to go all the way if people let it do so. So the next stage beyond just just giving verbal reassurance and showing that they are there in numbers and, they are, and people are much bigger than this tiny minority that's working this stuff. And I can't emphasise that enough. The people who are driving this backlash in numbers, they are really, really small, but they're in powerful positions and they are really good at making themselves, yeah, by the tricks of social media, making themselves a little bigger than they are. But in my case for instance i've I've got a block list on Twitter where basically uncompromisingly as soon as I've seen anybody who looks like a gender critical I just block them and the miraculous result of that is that most days I can tw- I can post what I like and I never get trolled by these people but that also tells me how few there are you know i i achieve I achieved that initially on about two and a half thousand blocks so so that says you know well, there weren't tens of thousands of them. There was just this small group who who post obsessively all day, mm-hmm. and then they generate the material that the press picks up and and, and dries further. But the next level, I think, for people who want to be um, uh, good allies, I think is to is to act first, is to step in. To uh, you know that so often when this stuff kicks off, it does the the, the response unfortunately, does have to begin from trans people initially. And then it feels like we've got to laboriously explain to people what's going on. And then some some big hitting heroes will come along and then start to fight on our side. And then it begins to feel a bit more even. But it would be very nice in some cases never not to have done the first part that suddenly these bullies, and they are bullies, encounter that that they are up against people their own size who are not yet high bound there are certain things I can't do online I can't get angry I can't I can't snap back I never respond to these people because I know that they would always twist it and use it against me even no matter how reasonable I was being they would find a way to to show that I wasn't reasonable but I think with gender people it's harder to to do that do that play and consequently you know where the cisgender person stands up and says oi you know stop cut that out that's rubbish you know if you want if you've got an argument have it with me then it's a constant reinforcement that people have got our backs and right now after all these years you know that's something I think we really need to feel because resilient as we are and as I have said, we can have no going back because there is nowhere nowhere to go back to. It is bearably tough, and I would really like to get on that with other things. I thought I was going to just be doing the gardening in my retirement, <laughs> and maybe riding a bike or something, or doing learning to knit, anything. But you know, it's I as it says in my Twitter profile. You know, I, I checked out. <laughs> I tried to check out, but was unable to leave. You know. And <laughs> And so I'm here still trying to do my part because I don't think that I can leave my friends to face it on their own. So, yeah, please, allies, please help us on that.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Christine. This has been such an honour and a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and speak to me today. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for having me on
0: That was Christine Burns. You can find her on Twitter at Christine Burns. Her book, Trans Britain, Our Journey from the Shadows, is available now. Did you know that last week we reached number two on the Apple Politics Podcast ranking? Guess who was directly above us at number 31? none other than Nigel Farage. We are so close to overtaking him on the charts, so if you're enjoying Enemies of the People, please tell everyone you know. It's easy to share the podcast, just click the share button on your app. Make sure to follow and subscribe and rate and review us wherever you listen to our show. Your engagement with the show really helps us grow. You can also support us over at Coffee. and if you become a monthly supporter, you will get access to our monthly Frenemies book club. The link is in the episode description. And don't forget you can enter the giveaway for November's book, The Storm is Upon Us, by Mike Rothschild. You can enter it by donating over at Coffee or by tweeting or emailing us a screenshot of your review of the show. Remember, Mike Rothschild will be on the podcast next week, talking about his research in QAnon, so stay tuned for that. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People.